Mic check. One, two. Are you Mike? Uh, no. Mic check failed. Everybody and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Hello, William Bibiani. Everyone calls you Bibbs. Hi. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Uh, people call me Rockmeister McCool on this show. Yeah. Uh, you can call me whatever you want. Just... Nothing too cruel. And we will pronounce it... A little cruel is okay. We will pronounce it Rockmeister McCool no matter what. Anyway, (laughs) this is the episode where we read read your emails. Mm -hmm. You control the conversation this time around. That's right. You can write us in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And uh, we try to read as many as we can, so uh, feel free to send us questions, concerns, critiques... Uh, you want recommendations, you want to recommend stuff to us, you want to just talk about whatever, this is your time, we give it to you freely. So uh, without further ado, let's get started. Whitney, who's our first letter? Our first letter is from Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Andrew Luca, say- get off the counter. <laughs> oh my goodness. Give us one minute. Luca is a very naughty cat who Luca, lives, in this, uh, lives cat. in this apartment while we record. Uh, our first letter is from Andrew. Andrew says, good day. Good day. Uh, listening to the discussion about Project Power, I found it interesting to hear Bibbs mention about how Trolls World Tour would be a game changer in the way that films might be released in the future. Um, we had a conversation about I that. I believe we did. Uh, while the film did make $100 million domestically, it's only just been released in my part of the world, Australia. Uh, I'm concerned about this kind of release strategy as staggered releases still inevitably encourage piracy. More than a few people I know eagerly downloaded Trolls World, to- World Tour simply because they wanted or... In- or, as they said, needed something new to entertain their kids. They'd, uh, they'd happily have paid for it if it were available here, but instead a release was held back for months. This kind of problem isn't new in Australia, and, I, and I'm sure other parts of the world, uh, with the Lego movie having its box office reduced greatly because it was released 45 days earlier in America and as such was pirated a lot in Australia. I know the easiest solution is to say, well, just don't pirate the film, but with universal releases like Project Power or The Old Guard on Netflix helping create and push social media discussions, I'm wondering when the major studios will finally realize that global day and date releases are an essential part for reducing piracy. It is even more of an issue when it comes to Oscar season films. While while so many of these art house slash indie adjacent films take months to be released elsewhere in the world, I recall Jeff Nichols' Loving taking seven months to be released in Australia, and by Ugh. that stage, anyone who had been itching to see it either imported it, pirated it, uh, making the cinema release redundant. As such, we lose out on many films because they don't get an audience at all. We didn't get Clemency, Blindspotting, Harriet, and we still haven't got uh, Never Really, Sometimes, Always, yet. Oh, man. I know I might be talking about a fairly niche problem in Australia, but surely piracy is a global issue. Uh, If there was one change I'd hope that we we would have made uh, because of this terrible pandemic, it would be that staggered releases would disappear. I know this is a tired old discussion that gets boring quick, but sometimes... But I'm wondering if uh, both of you see any hope for this kind of change in the future. <laughs> Deepest from the bottom of a kangaroo pouch, Andrew. Andrew, thank you so much for writing in. And you're right, this is an issue that we've been talking about uh, in the industry for as, God, as long as I can remember. But you are also right in saying that uh, it's getting 
absolutely ridiculous and nonsensical that we don't have I understand that maybe day and date releases aren't always feasible in every single part of the world simultaneously I don't know what the situation is there are certain countries that only release a certain number of international films I know that China actually has a cap on how many American films mm-hmm. they actually release at all in theaters in a, on a, in a given year. I think it used to be like 25. I think they raised I, it, though. And I think the highest grossing film of the year is a Chinese film that hasn't made it to the States yet. Uh, um, the top 10 definitely has yeah. several international releases in it that just the United States hasn't been focusing mm-hmm. on. But... Uh, Whatever the rationale there used to be, uh, when you're going to be releasing films digitally, it makes no sense. Yeah, well, None whatsoever. You're releasing when, it digitally anyway. Just release it to Australia. Release it to yeah, wherever. Who cares? I, I understand that, like... Distribution laws are different around the world, and that's True. a concern. And you know, that's that's getting into the minutiae of actual laws. But I think that a lot of studios are hanging on to kind of a dated structure that came from when they could only make a finite number of prints. Yeah, when they had to mail prints around the world, and sometimes yeah. they had to wait for it to finish in one market before they could box it up and send it overseas to another market. That's an excellent point, and we don't think about mm. that enough. But you're right. Yeah, there used to be because of uh, there were they only printed so many thirty. 35 millimeter prints or mm-hmm. you know, occasionally 70, but mostly 35. Um, and yeah, they would shop the same prints around all over the country. And it was only when the domestic releases started to sort of dwindle and they started to like leave theaters that those prints were free to be sent overseas. But again, now that's irrelevant. Yeah, you can... You can mail a little digital truck for a digital uh, mm-hmm. uh, projector for much less money. Yeah. You can send it overseas. You can email yeah. keys to you know theaters internationally. I, I understand not wanting to put the digital file online. A, because, you know, with these, like, giant 4K releases, that's yeah. a staggering amount of information. But also, um, you don't want that to be available because that's even easier to pirate if you can just yeah. hack into Universal's um, server or whatever. Exactly. So like, you do want to send it physically, but at the same time... Yeah, just send a guy. You can fit it in an overhead <laughs> bin and just you, well, you, can, you could have it in Australia by the end of the day. You don't even have to send a guy. Just send the, yeah. the truck. The, it's, it's, about, know, it's about the size of a like a, a double VHS cassette, I guess. No, about I, that size. No, I'm just I'm just saying. Like if you want to have like that added level of security where someone's with oh, it the whole go, time. Like, chain, yeah, chain it to your wrist. Yeah, like it's the like it's the nuclear football and a White House <laughs> down movie. Like I get that. I understand that there's a lot of different things, but like this this addresses a couple of different things that we really need to and I would hope that this year is just such a shock to the system that the industry takes a lot of opportunities to make some changes because We've grandfathered in a lot of things that no longer make sense. Yeah. We yeah. don't. Like, the again, the staggered releases kind of made sense when there were a limited number of prints and when online piracy wasn't so heavy an issue. Mm. Nowadays, online piracy is a huge issue. This is one of the things that Americans started complaining about this. When, like, oh, my God, overseas countries are going to get tenant first. We're going to get so much piracy. Things are going to be spoiled on social media. Meanwhile... Everyone else on the country, planet's yeah. like, well, yeah, now you know what it's like. <laughs> and that's a good point. And, that's, and, uh, and, and Turnabout, I suppose, is fair play, but we really should just yeah. stop doing that. I, and I know another big part of it is uh, it's just buzz, creating buzz, yeah. uh, advanced word on certain films. Uh, I know there was um, like it was a big change with the first Jurassic, I guess it was the fourth Jurassic Park movie. Jurassic World. Jurassic World. Yeah. Um, 
Jurassic World was a rarity in that it was released uh, in all international markets simultaneously. And yeah. and as such, it made like a half a billion dollars in one weekend, which was unheard of at the time. And now that now that's been beaten by a couple films since. Yeah. Uh, but that was really unusual to release a film like in America and in China and in you know other other major well, uh, international cities all on the same weekend. Yeah. Uh, it's very much the Jaws motif, where before yeah, Jaws, yeah. they didn't release a movie all over the country at once, and then Jaws, they're like, no, we're going to make enough prints, we're going to release it everywhere at the same time. I know that uh, uh, the, a lot of films get released in the United States first, though, to see if they do big enough business, mm-hmm. and then they decide where they're going to distribute it internationally. Yeah, there's a fair number uh, of films that get released theatrically here, yeah, but then end up going straight to Netflix somewhere else, for yeah, example. It's, it, it's, it's a lot of money to send these prints everywhere yeah. and to secure all these distribution deals, so that's a big part of it. True. And also, if they're released in the States and they're really, really big... Mm-hmm. And that will give a lot of advance word to international markets. Like, oh, well, it was a huge hit in the States. Mm-hmm. Let's go see it. Yeah. Um, and there's also, we got to remember, there are also potentially deals that result from uh, pre-sales. Yeah. Where we have a lot of movies, often lower budgeted movies or, or you know smaller genre films. What they will do is they will raise money for the films by pre-selling the distribution of the film overseas. Mm-hmm. So that a lot of these smaller action movies, horror movies, and the like, sometimes you're just like, wow, how they how they get so much money for that? And a lot of it is because they they pre-sold it in advance. The movie is bought and paid for. Mm. They don't actually need to make a profit on it. They've already made the money. They just need to put it out now. Yeah. And sometimes that comes with deals, I, th- I think, it's my understanding, of when and how they are distributed and in what way. And again, 2020 might be a weird situation where previous deals may already have been in place. We've all heard the story about New Mutants and how mm. everyone was just like, just put it on Disney+, Plus. who gives a crap? And that's a very reasonable thing to say. Problem is, when Disney bought Fox, as is my understanding, they made a deal that all of the films that Fox currently had in the can had to be released theatrically. Disney wasn't allowed to dump them. Yeah. So they dumped them into drive-ins <laughs> as soon as they could. <laughs> we and, uh, pushed it back, pushed it back, pushed it and back, you, you and I pushed did, it into the drive yeah. You and I didn't see that movie because no. uh, they didn't uh, release it in a safe way and we couldn't make it out yeah. to the drive-in in time to review it. Yeah, so, drive-in was really far away. Uh, but from what I've heard, it's quite bad. I, I don't know. Here's uh, what uh, I know. Critics I know and, and admire and trust have told me it's quite bad. Here, so. here, here's, here's what I know for sure. I will not know until I see it for myself. You and I have both been the outliers mm-hmm. On films many a time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, even amongst critics that we trust and love. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if and if I took every film critic's, like, word for it, I wouldn't need to be a film critic. Like, I feel right. pretty good about my, uh, my own personal mm-hmm. opinion on films. So I will see it and one day decide for myself. I have also heard that it was not very good, but... I'm gonna. Who I'm, knows? We're gonna I, see. I'll find out we're gonna see myself. Tenet, and we're gonna yeah. see the New Mutants, and we're of course gonna, we are. We're gonna see Unhinged. All yeah. of the films we've missed. Eventually. Uh, eventually. <laughs> Just not now. <laughs> um, but yes, pursuant to your point. Um, is for for reasons of piracy, for reasons of just simple logic. The idea of these long staggered releases are getting increasingly silly. Yeah, and I don't understand. The complexities of it, maybe there's, maybe it's a matter of the size of markets not being able to uh, actually like withstand the juggernaut of content that we release domestically. There may be places with fewer movie theaters overall, and you just can't release sixteen movies a week. 
mm-hmm. or whatever. It doesn't make sense, and that's how they get staggered back. That may be a practical consideration that is somewhat logical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but generally speaking, yeah, that that thing went to video on demand. Just show the damn Trolls movie. (laughs) Who cares? You'll make more money that way. Come on. So, yes, I 100% agree with you. It's it's ridiculous for reasons that go even above and beyond piracy. Uh, Here's a letter from Alexandre. Hello, Alexandre. Hello. Uh, Hi. Hi. uh, From Alexandre, Rio de Janeiro, Janeiro, Brazil. Ooh, that's awesome. Um, Every week is a pleasure to hear the melody that your brains produce as they bump into each other. (laughs) That may be the kindest thing anyone's ever said about this podcast. It sounds like this. Um, a hypothesis about the scarcity of good parodies in theaters. Oh, yeah. The end of reruns. The cultural footprint between the 70s and the 90s was more lasting thanks to long periods where different generations consume the same films and series on TV. What are your thoughts? Uh, that's the letter. Uh, um, okay, it's interesting point. Let's give a little context here if anyone missed the beginning of that conversation. Uh, Whitney and I have often uh, discussed how the parody genre, particularly the movie genre, mm. Uh, has dwindled uh, in the last 20 years or so, at first in quality and lately just at all. Uh Um, The parody genre was largely popularized by films like the Kentucky Fried Movie and Airplane, although it did predate that. Uh, Mel Brooks had been doing it for a while as well. Young Frankenstein. There there were spoof movies for a while, but yeah, there was a a really good period of them. Yeah. uh, In in the 80s and kind of into the 90s, depending on, you know, mileage may vary. With definite forerunners Mm -hmm. in the 70s. But The whole thing is that there were movies and movie genres that people knew so well that they were rife for satire. They were rife for silly jokes made at the expense of scenes, moments, tropes that we all knew incredibly well. Um, There was a time when filmmakers did often very clever things with this. Mm. And then there came a time when they didn't. And we had a big wave, mostly from like 1999. No. Scary Movie was like, what, 2000? 2000, Scary Movie. Yeah, from Scary Movie, I think, kicked off this, like, second wave of parody films in which, for the most part, there's a couple of notable exceptions, but for the most part, the jokes got really lazy. Yeah. And I've heard film critics call it, like, point-and-click comedy, which is just like, hey, remember that movie? (laughs) Well, now someone's got a big butt. Like, that's it. Like, that's the whole joke. Hey, remember that movie? We did something dumb to it. That's it. They're not commenting on it. Like, the, here's yeah. the sophistication of the joke in uh, in date movie. Mm. Uh, Napoleon Dynamite shows up in that movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, played by a different actor than in Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, but clearly but playing the The character. Dynamite. And the joke is, in Napoleon Dynamite, the character wore a t-shirt that said, vote for Pedro. Because mm. he was helping a friend who was running for school office. Right. In date movie, it said, don't vote for Pedro. That's how sophisticated the joke is. Yeah. And, and the day movie is actually right the, right the opposite of what's on there. And day movie is actually one of the better films in that parody cycle. There's actually some mm. good jokes in there. <laughs> I'm not saying it's necessarily worth it to okay. find them, but they're in there if you actually end up seeing mm. it. So the the question is what happened? And some would argue that I've argued that the parody genre just it's easy to get lazy about it and make a movie so cheaply that you don't have to make a lot of money for it to be worthwhile financially. But this is an interesting argument here, which is to say there are there there are fewer films that we're watching over and over again. There's this mm-hmm. familiarity with films is often very limited to specific franchises and genres. Like you could maybe do a parody of 
the MCU or mm. Fast and Furious or Jurassic Park. I like a dedicated one film parody. Yeah. But for the most part, there are fewer films that people are intimately familiar with. And one could even make the argument that the point and click kind of like disaster movie, epic movie, superhero movie ones. The reason why they were so superficial is because most people are only aware of those movies superficially. And that kind of superficial call out humor cater to people who didn't even have to see the movie in question in order well, to get the joke. Uh, that, that's very that's truer than you may, might even realize, because from what I understand, when they're writing those movies, they're, they haven't seen the movies that they're parodying. A lot of the time. They yeah. haven't seen the movies, and as such, there's They're often nothing... trying to be so, so up-to-date that yeah. it's just like they're movies that aren't even out yet. Like, they, they saw a preview, and they're taking image, images from a preview yeah. and writing them into the movie for, yeah, that exact, that exact reason. This kind of cultural immediacy because that's all anybody has really retained. Mm, it's one of the and, reasons uh, why they don't age well is because they're mm, only about immediacy and mm, once they're in the review mirror they just seem weirdly dated. And, and it's also uh, robs them of the ability to comment on the context of that thing because there's mm. no context yet. Yeah. Uh, also uh, and this this may uh, be just some sort of weird sociological spitballing but Back in the 1980s, there was a little bit of a subversive streak. We've talked a lot, a, a lot about this, how mm. uh, there was a lot more counterculture. There was a lot more yeah. uh, poking fun at the mainstream. There was a dominant pirate mm. paradigm that a lot of people had a great time subverting and living outside of. Yeah. And by the time that wave of spoofs came around, the mainstream had kind of been more widely accepted. The subcult, like the, the fringe cultures... And that idea that we need to subvert the dominant paradigm and mock things that are in the mainstream. That became the mainstream. That, all of that stuff became the mainstream and that instinct, I think, sort of fell away from a lot of comedy writers. Yeah. That, oh, this is big and popular. Something's suspicious about it. It must suck in some way. Let's yeah. take it down a notch. That's interesting because you, you, you bring up a good point. I found that in, in the 2000s, and I think to this day, to a different extent, there became this, like... I called it ne- I called it neo sincerity. Yeah. Where the idea is so many things are rife for parody. So many things are rife for satire and ironic detachment mm. that there comes a time when enjoying things, even simple things, sincerely felt kind of rebellious. And I think that's yeah. something I think it's one of the reasons why Twilight, which is not a great franchise, but also not quite as bad as people made it out to be. It's I definitely don't agree with a lot of its themes, but I can also totally appreciate why it was successful. I think one it's one of the reasons why so many people, initially myself included, were really just down on it because mm. it was uncomplicated. It wasn't mm. it wasn't irreverent. It wasn't meta. It was just the thing. Mm. It was just doomed teen romance with vampires. And it was very sincere about it. And there were some people who really glommed onto that. I suspect often they were younger people, this is just spitballing, but mm. they were they'd grown up with so much ironic detachment that something that was kind of pure and like actually dramatic and not apologizing <laughs> for itself or mm. calling attention to how fake it is was kind of like, oh, I, I'm allowed to feel. <laughs> oh well, I, I will. Thank you, Twilight. And there's a lot of people who were so used to mocking everything that you just had to reject it outright. Like your mm. brain couldn't accept it. And frankly, it wasn't until I started really getting into the Step Up movies, which are also just absolutely sincere, mm. 
that I started to realize, oh my god, I missed movies that were just movies. <laughs> I missed movies that were just that, that genuine were, were and to, honest, to, and were trying to think out themselves yeah. while they uh, while I, they progress. And not trying to elevate themselves mm. by denigrating themselves, mm. you know? It's like, oh, it's like some scary movie. Hey, 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 hey. I love Scream, by the way. Scream, <laughs> but Scream was like the film that kicked this off, and I think a lot of people picked the wrong lesson, which is, you can only emerge as sort of, um, you can only really stand out as an exemplar of something if you put down the they're thing all, that you're... satirizing or deconstructing. Yeah, it. yeah, and I... I'm a little tired of it. I've been tired of it for a while. Fortunately, there are a lot of movies and TV shows that don't do that now. And um, yeah, but but again, to the point, those parody movies got really, really cynical. And I think a lot of it is because, yeah, there wasn't a lot of genuine attachment mm. to the things that were being parodied in so many of those movies. And you got the sense, the very real sense from a lot of those parody films in the post scary movie wave that the people making the movies had no affection for them. Well, and I, that's I, just I, well, less appealing to me. Well, they, they, it's not that they didn't have affection. It's that they had no point of view at all. Well, I'm, I'm would argue that the people who made airplane have absolutely no affection for the film zero hour, which is the one that they're kind of spoofing. It's specifically the one directly. Yeah. But I think uh, they, I think they understand in their hearts that it's fun. Well, they, they, I think they understand that media has become absurd mm. and, you know, they left their, they famously left their VCRs like kind of a novelty at the time. Yeah. They left their VCRs running all night just to see what was on TV in the middle of the night because mm. it was all pre-programmed back then and they ran aground on this really awful film. It's like, really? This is what media is? You stay up in the middle of the night you're kind of drunk and all you get is complete shit. Mm. This is media has turned back on itself. We need to do something about this. We Air- need to make fun of this. Yeah, Airplane is one of the great movies mm. that I turn to when people say all remakes are bad. I'm mm. like, Airplane <laughs> Airplane is pretty much a remake. Airplane is technically hour, a remake. Yeah. It's a definite, it's a different take. It's a comedic take on a serious story, but it is a remake. It is often dialogue for dialogue a remake. Mm. Um, but anyway, that's a, that's an excellent point. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a, that's a mm. fine point to make. Thank you so much. Um, here's a letter from Gorilla Walrus Ninja. That's okay. I, I read the letter how you sign off. I'm not going to read your, your name right. out of the, the subject line. Is that of the Boston Gorilla Walrus Ninjas? Uh, that's the, the Bridgeport mentions. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Hello. Hi. Absolutely love the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for keeping me entertained as I work from home and I haven't gone out in the last six months for obvious reasons. Yeah. I was wondering if you could do more to uh, do a more elaborate review mm. of Gangs of New York at some point. Oh. It's one of my favorite films. Cameron Diaz is a bit miscast, mm. but otherwise it is a near perfect movie. Entertaining with great performances and the cinematography of the New York draft riots was excellent. Uh, would love for you guys to expound on the problems you see in the film. Thanks again for all you do. Gorilla Walrus Ninja. Gangs of uh, New York. Yeah. Gangs of New York is a film I revisited not that long ago. I did an article mm. for The Wrap okay. uh, when The Irishman came out. And what I did was I ranked all of Martin Scorsese's gangster movies, of which there are fewer than you might think. It's, I think with The Irishman, it's six or seven. It's like, right? se- it's like se- well, I'm trying to, off the top of my head, you got the, tri- you got the triumvirate, you got uh, Mean Streets, Goodfellas, and Casino. Right. All of which are amazing. Um, you've got The Departed, which mm. is a different beast, but it's clearly a gangster film. You got Gangs of New York, 
different kind of gangster, older, but older, gangs, but yeah. gangs. Uh, I included Boxcar Bertha, which is about no, sort of Prohibition era gangsters. Um, and I feel like I'm forgetting one, but that's mm. basically it. There's not yeah. as oh, and, and the Irishman, obviously. Uh, yeah. um, but and I think I might be forgetting one. But I revisited Gangs in New York because I actually hadn't seen it since it came out in theaters, and I remembered it being very unwieldy. Mm-hmm. I remembered also thinking that Cameron Diaz was a bit miscast. Uh, and that's about it. That's about all I remembered, other than right. Daniel Day-Lewis is really, really good in it. Mm-hmm. And when I revisited it, I found two things. Mm-hmm. One, much better than I remembered. Okay. It's, it's, there's a lot of... It, it's got flaws, and I'll talk about them in a second, but it, it holds up better than I thought. And also, I also think Leonardo DiCaprio was miscast. <laughs> I, just, yeah, I was going to say that. Um, yeah. Uh, I saw it several times. I saw it twice oh, really? in theaters when it came out. Really? You uh, like well, it that much? No. Oh. I, 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 uh, <laughs> it was one of those, like, this was when I could you know, afford to, like, re-watch movies just as a matter of course, yeah. which I just can't do anymore. But um, I saw it when it opened, and I was, like, impressed, but it didn't really sit right with me. So mm. I decided to give it a second chance. It's like, maybe there's something here. Maybe it's too elaborate. Maybe I need to wait for it to grow on me. I saw yeah. it again. Felt the same way. Yeah. Uh, and then I think I saw it two subsequent times on home video. Once with some friends and once uh, just miscellaneous. And it, it never changed in my head. Like, mm. it didn't grow or evolve. I was looking for new angles. I was looking for a new way of looking at this thing. And all I could see was Chinese democracy. Uh, mm. Chinese Democracy uh, came out after Gangs of New York, but the idea – it was a, a record that Guns N' Roses was putting together famously for 13 years. Yeah. It's um, a long time to work on one album. A long album. time to work on one album. And if if you listen to Chinese Democracy, it sounds like they've been working on it for 13 years. Every single track is way overproduced. Uh, there's not one guitar track in, in uh, any song. There's like seven that are all overlaid. And you know, yeah. Axl Rose is singing duets and trios with himself. And everything's just sort of mixed to, to complete chaos. And that's an interesting artistic exercise. Um, whether or not that's good or bad, as uh, your mileage may vary. But I looked at something like Gangs of New York. They built a whole city. Mm-hmm. They're going to tell the true story of the way crime and these gangs started in New York. It was this gigantic origin story for America. It was this huge, ambitious project. And it felt like it. It felt overwritten. It felt like Scorsese had been ruminating on this thing for decades, which he had been. Yeah, this was originally a movie he wanted to make, like, in the early 80s. He wanted to star, like, Robert De Niro and I forget who else. And... Yeah, this is this is going to be like one of his like his big epic movie, and then Heaven's Gate kind of ruined epic directorial uh, kind vision of thing, kind yeah. of films, and as a result, he just he couldn't get the money for it, and it was on the back burner for a long time. And you can just like, and then like Kenneth Lonergan, I think, ended up like completely very much rewriting it, and I'm sure other people did too. And yeah, the result is a movie that there's a clear through line mm. in Gangs of New York. There is a very good linear premise. And story where we're going to tell a story of the early days of crime in New York, where mm. gangs weren't so much a bunch of criminals who happened to hang out together as they were actual clans that sort of uh, they almost almost as though they're like wandering the hills mm. and like getting into battles like Braveheart style or whatever. And the idea of how they ended up sort of being. Uh, sucked into bureaucracy and became becoming part of this kind of self-sustaining urban system. Yeah. And within that, 
there's a story of a young boy whose father led one of those gangs, died, and then this boy grows up and tries to exact revenge for his father's death, but in so doing, Mm -hmm. ends up falling under the wing of the guy who killed his father and actually forming a complicated relationship with him. There's something really kind of beautiful and Shakespearean about that. That's a really solid, dramatic, epic premise. And it's built around some key incidents in New York City history. And But uh, but Scorsese ruined it by casting Leonardo DiCaprio, who is not giving a good performance in that movie. He's not. Um, He he feels like he's giving everyone else in this movie, all the supporting cast in this movie, whether it's... Or or not even supporting, where Daniel Day-Lewis is arguably mm. at least a co-lead. But everyone, everyone besides DiCaprio and Diaz Mm. is giving this incredibly nuanced, immersive like you Uh, just took a time machine I I wouldn't say nuanced they're swinging for the walls, they're giving like operatic performances. Okay, but I think I I do think that there is something to be said for Mm. performances that are big because the personalities of the characters are big, Uh as opposed to they're big because it's bad acting and so I think these are some larger than life people living in a larger-than-life time, Mm. and they feel like they belong in these incredibly lavish sets, which, by the way, it's absurd that this movie lost Best Production Design. (laughs) They actually built a city. It's incredible, the production design of this movie. Like, holy cow. Wow. Um, But then DiCaprio and Diaz, they feel like the Americans who get cast in like a British epic in order to get Americans to go see it. <laughs> and it's like, it, it's like in uh, hail Caesar when like Alden Ehrenreich comes in and he's a cowboy actor and he's being asked to be in some sort of like Co- gun- costume parlor. Drama, yeah. Some yeah. kind of like Jezebel kind of thing. And he's just clearly off. And it doesn't matter that DiCaprio is a good actor. He is a good actor. It doesn't matter that Cameron Diaz is a good actor. She is a good actor. She's been amazing in movies. I don't know what it was. I don't know if Scorsese wanted them to feel like outsiders and encouraged them to play the characters a little differently or what, but they just don't feel right. And I know Cameron Diaz stands out, and I think it's because she's not in the movie that much, and we kind of get used to DiCaprio's presence and the fact that he is kind of an outsider in the story kind of is uh, makes his sort of more contemporary version of that acting style mm-hmm. more forgivable or more like easy to get used to. But yeah, I think they're out of place, honestly. So that's my general take on it. I think there's an amazing movie in here. There's certainly amazing. There's amazing cinematography. There's amazing mm. production design. There's amazing costume design. There's yeah, amazing ideas, there's, set there, pieces. There are, there's, there's a lot of amazing stuff, and there's certainly a lot of it, isn't there? It's so long. There, it's, it's, it's longer long, than it needs to be. It's yeah. long. There's too, there's just too much of it in there. Mm. Uh, it's possible to have too much of a movie crammed into your movie. Yeah. And I think uh, it is so over-designed yeah. and so overwritten and so overthought that it becomes hard to watch after a while, at least yeah. for me. Uh, and you think it'd be better you begin getting like distracted by like little details in the movie because all of the 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 main plot and the subplot become kind of irrelevant to just how much your eyeballs are full. Do you think Gangs of New York would be better if mm. it was shorter? Like they just stripped away some of the some of the fat, if you will, mm. and just made a more streamlined movie? Or do you think it'd be better if they had given all of these things that they were clearly very passionate about? more room to breathe and made it like a four-part HBO miniseries? Uh, I think if they had uh, less budget. 
I think if they were working with smaller means, mm. uh, we wouldn't be talking about it in the same way. We wouldn't be talking about this big sort of epic history of America. We've been talking about a little bit more intimate of story. We would have been talking about but, the story, yeah. But I th- uh, yeah, I think we'd be talking about the story. I think we'd be talking about the characters. I think we'd be talking about the things Scorsese wanted us to talk about yeah. and not just the superficial stuff. I don't think it's superficial because I do think it's very much what the movie was on about. Mm. But you're right. I do think the characters get lost on mm. it for a variety of reasons. So anyway, so that's our that's our general take mm-hmm. on Gangs yeah, of New I York. Think, I think it's an admirable film. It's not a if, bad here, movie. It's you know, a messy movie. Not not a, an HBO miniseries. If Scorsese had looked at this era mm. and decided to make a series of films set in that era all about different characters. That could be cool. Like if he decided to make four different movies. Like there's a, a bit in Gangs of New York about the firefighters. Mm. Oh, like that the, full the, sequence it's, is amazing. It's this really fun sequence <laughs> and you know, it's this big set and like, so there's a building on fire. The firefighters uh, only get paid if they can take stuff from burning buildings. They loot buildings that yeah. they're, they're saving. The building they've gotten to, it's pretty much already gone. It's mm-hmm. it's a burned out husk. So they just break into the building next door. Make a whole movie about yeah. that, about the, the firefighters and the relationships uh, that goes on in that era. Yeah. I bet uh, you yeah. that. That sounds amazing. Ma- then make a Bill the Butcher movie. You yeah. know, do... do uh, you've use built, my point is you've built the set. Yeah. You've built the set. Make a couple of movies out of it. Yeah, because... Have each one have like a slightly different tone, a different cast. And that Ooh, way we can what if really explore what he's getting at without cramming it all together in one gigantic What film. if you had done a thing where you build this whole city and you invite like four filmmakers to make movies there? Oh, there you go. Yeah, we're all going to make movies too. about the same period. You get Martin Scorsese to do one. Mm. You get, I don't know, Coppola to do one. You get mm. the other Coppola to do one. You get... <laughs> All the, the other Coppola. All the, all the New York, all the New York filmmakers. Just get all, every New York yeah. filmmaker to do one. Yeah. Would have been neat. Anyway. But uh, anyway, so that's our take on Gangs of New York. Okay. Thanks for asking. Right. Um, here is a letter from Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Whitney, Falson, Meister, McCule, OBE, ACE, and LGMI. I hope those all stand for... Uh, Rock Positive things. Okay. Um, I've been listening to you guys for a while now, and I really love to get into your series on Star Trek, but I'm waiting for your TNG episodes. Ah. And I cannot wait for your Deep Space Nine episodes, which is one of my favorite iterations of Star Trek. When I was younger, I used to think that Star Trek was a nerd show for nerds, and I hated it. Well, yes and yes. Um, <laughs> even though I had never seen an episode until maybe last year when I started binging it hard after going through a depressive episode of sorts, oh. one of the things that got me through was The Next Generation. I was surprised by the warmth of the show, the warmth the show had for humanity and the hope for the future. I remember, uh, I remember having a cry over Picard and Data discussing what it meant to deal with failure in life, mm. and it truly did leave a deep impact on me, and I had a little cry on the way home from work. Mm. Uh, over lockdown in New Zealand... Hello, New Zealand. Hello. I watched all of Deep Space Nine, and I loved it. Yeah, Many great nice thematic game. episodes and some very funny ones, too. I am now a Star Trek fan and loving its optimism for humanity. I finally get what you're talking about, Whitney and Bibbs. My question is pretty simple. What episodes are you looking forward to the most in all our yesterdays? Uh, he, uh, he calls it all your yesterdays. That's fine. It's all uh, our yesterdays. Just, just quickly... Uh, Mine are Measure of a Man. Yeah. Uh, thine, that's the Data's on Trial episode. Yeah. Uh, thine Own Self, Hero Worship, The Drumhead, The Royale, The Magnificent Ferengi. That's, uh, the, uh, I think that's the uh, Area 51 episode of Deep Space Nine. It, I, I think so, yeah. Time. Uh, who, mor- who Mourns for Morn? Take oh, me- that's a really good one. Yeah. Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite and It's Only a Paper Moon. Uh, keep up the awesome, awesome work, Anthony. P.S. Uh, 
You have read some of my emails in the past, and I have dyslexia, and you reading them out perfectly means a lot to me, as I fear what I am saying might be getting lost in translation, so thanks. No, your, your letters are amazing. Your letters are, Thank are you. perfectly clear. My, I hope my reading is doing them justice. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, over at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, Whitney and I host a weekly podcast series called All Our Yesterdays, in which we, in our folly, decided we are going to review every single episode and movie of Star Trek in production order. And as a result, we're still on the original series, although we're two-thirds of the way through it, and we should be done with it before mm-hmm. the end of next year. And then we'll move on to the animated series, and then we'll move on to Next Generation. Um, oh, the, move on to the animated series, then we'll do a couple movies. Well, yeah, but the then movies we'll only on take a couple of weeks. Yeah. Like, then we'll move on to Next Generation. Um, but uh, And yeah, so Next Generation, and we're going to spend a long time in Next Generation. That was a long-running mm-hmm. show, as was Deep Space Nine, as was Voyager. Um, so we're in this for the long haul. We're doing this for like the next 10 years. We've done the math. We're doing it weekly and it will take a while, especially since they keep making them. Uh, but, uh, first off, I would like to say thank you so much, uh, for your interest. And I'm glad that you, like myself, uh, when I, I discovered Deep Space Nine during a, a really down time in my life as well. And I also... Took a lot from it. I just mm. I think it's an incredibly well crafted show. It's a show that deals with I think more directly with the clash of cynicism and hope mm. uh, than some Star Trek does. Oftentimes yeah. they just tend to just lean on hope, and I think well, Deep Space Nine is a bit more Space grim has, a lot of the time. Well, it has a, a, an outsider's perspective. Yeah. There's characters who don't believe the same thing that the Starfleet characters do. Yeah, and I think that's by the time by the time Deep Space Nine came along, that was a much needed perspective and I think the show yeah. mostly handled it really really well. Mm-hmm. Um I would like to say that whether or not you pick up all our yesterdays, I think that if you go back to the original series and you'll find that there are some very bad episodes. <laughs> However, mostly a lot of the stuff that we glommed onto in Next Generation and Deep Space Nine so we're talking about a lot of that's already in there, and there's a lot of really wonderful episodes there, too. So if you feel like you're running out of Trek, you might want to go back and re-explore some of those early episodes. And, mm. um, yeah, and if you feel like that's too much of a time sink, like look around, take out lists of the best episodes ever and cherry pick. Um, a lot of it's on Netflix. Mm. I don't know what the situation is on in New Zealand. Uh, but here, they're all on Netflix. So are, are you looking forward the most to talking about Deep Space Nine? Um Yes, probably okay. more than anything else. I'm looking for. Okay, here's what I'm, okay, I'm going to say. I'm looking forward to. Here's what I'm looking forward to most: hmm. the animated series. <laughs> okay. The animated series is, I think, very underappreciated. There's some really dumb episodes, but there's also a lot of really creative episodes that are completely freed from limitations of budget. Hmm. And as a result, some of them get really weird and silly, but some of them are actually surprisingly good and well written. And I think you're actually going to enjoy them mm. uh, if you follow along with us. Um, when it comes to Next Generation, there's stuff I'm really looking for. I'm looking forward to every lore episode. Ah. I was a huge fan of lore. Lore is one of my favorite characters in sci-fi. I just mm. really liked lore a lot. Um, I'm looking forward to the Moriarty episodes because I'm the only person who likes them. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to finally getting to Relics, which is an episode we reference all the time. That's the one with... Uh Scotty shows up in Next Generation because he's been stuck in a transporter buffer for a long, long time. It comes up all the time in our conversations. One, because I think it's relevant in terms of like how the sort of the series sort of interact with each other and 
sort of the way that they handle nostalgia, but also because it's got some of the biggest continuity holes in the entire <laughs> series. And it's important to go back to it every once in a while and remember that as much as Star Trek likes to have continuity, it is also just a show created by people. And sometimes they just yeah. don't do their research or or don't care and try to tell the best story that they can even if it contradicts hmm. stuff um so i'm looking forward to that i've, I've told the story before i went to a star trek convention hmm. where um some of like the the story guys who worked on next generation uh were, put out questions to the audience and somebody stood up and said in the episode relics when scotty said you know the question was about yeah. the continuity errors and, and they actually interrupted them and said are you asking a relics question okay here's the answer we don't know okay <laughs> We weren't thinking it out. We were just writing a fun episode. I've lost track of how many times we've told that anecdote. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to, and you're going to know the name of this episode because it's so famous. But I, this, this is an episode that I saw when it aired, uh-huh. and I thought it was ridiculous. But I was a kid at the time. Okay. And I've read so many different think pieces and editorials re-examining this episode and how it like really relates to today, often with meme culture. It's the one where uh, Picard gets stranded on a planet with someone from an alien species that only speaks in memes. <laughs> like it speaks in uh, it speaks the, in cultural references that mm, Picard doesn't understand. The, the title of the episode is Darmok. Yeah, and it's uh, he keeps saying things like Darmok on Jalad at Lord Farquaad Dar- in Shrek's castle and Fry's eyes squint. Darmok, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. Okay, Get yeah, it right. But like, the, and, I, and that means something to his species yeah. because they actually have like a frame of reference. Exactly. Which is so why they, I, they, they can translate the words, mm-hmm. but the context means nothing to him. So that yeah. figure out each other's stories and there's a really wonderful scene where he tells the epic of Gilgamesh to this character and when I first saw that episode it really annoyed me because I'm like how could they have any of these frames of reference without a baseline language Mm. that doesn't make any sense they would need to have actual words for Mm. things in order for people to learn these things in the first place and it drove me absolutely batty, but Until I was you taking... start learning etymology. <laughs> well, you learn etymology. Mm. You, you realize that as the internet has progressed, um, language has started to revert a little bit more to symbology. Mm. Um, we first started noticing that with um, sort of leet speak and how abbreviations started becoming part of a contemporary vernacular. And if you don't know what the abbreviations mean, it becomes just gobbledygook. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then we started noticing it with memes. I use memes constantly when I tweet because when I find that when I think mm. of just the world, I'm often in my head cross-referencing it with art that I've seen. Mm. Like kind of like that TV show Dream On that HBO refuses to put on HBO Max. Um, there was a show starring Brian Benban about a guy who just goes through typical sitcom stuff, but he watched so much TV as a kid that every time something happens to him, it reminds him of a TV show he saw, and mm. they would show clips from those shows yeah, mm. just sort of evoking the memory. And that's true for me. And so often I tweet and I'll find a GIF, and if a GIF doesn't exist, I will make one. Uh, because that is what I'm thinking in my head when someone, like if someone says, ah, oh, when will they finally reveal blah, 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 blah. And so I find my gif of the Scrabble tiles and sneakers spelling too many secrets, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Yeah. But if you don't know sneakers, you can kind of get that, but you're not really going to understand where I'm coming from and what yeah. I'm specifically referencing. So this Star Trek episode is very topical. I think I might've taken it just too literally as well, mm. but 
that's something I'm looking forward to rediscovering and analyzing as an adult whose ideas about language have evolved since I was eight. <laughs> as well, they should have. I'm looking forward to showing you Next Generation. Because Star Trek mm. The Next Generation is, I mean, not to, it's probably my favorite TV show of all time. Yeah. I, I, I love it. I was raised on it. It's a big part of my upbringing. I have l- taken a lot of philosophies from that show and just sort of carried them with me through life. Mm. Uh, and I'm wondering if in our uh, our little excursion through all of Star Trek, if you'll fall in love with it as hard as I once did. Yeah. Uh, probably not. I mean, you, a lot of, you know, your, your pop culture obsessions do have a lot mm. to do with the age at which you consume them. Yeah. They when can, you're young, when you're, you just absorb you know, when things entirely. You know, when you're formative, you know, in your formative years and you see something at just the right time at just the right age and it becomes part of you in, in a, a very particular kind of way. Yeah. So you, you probably won't, you know, become a, a no. next generation obsessive, but I'm wondering if you'll find in it some of the things that I've always carried with me. Well, here's what I'll say. Uh, it's not that I haven't seen the next generation. Mm. I've seen actually quite a bit of the next generation. What I haven't seen is the next generation, except for a couple episodes here and there, since it was on the air. Mm. And when it was on the air, I only watched it sporadically. So I didn't form that association that you had with it. I liked it a lot. Mm. There's stuff I really care about. Um, but I am curious because one of the things we discovered in all our yesterdays is that, you know, you're a critic. You're looking at these things with a critical eye. Sometimes you'll see an episode that isn't as good as you remember, and you'll talk mm. about that. And sometimes I see episodes of Star Trek that are considered these holy grails, and I find serious flaws in them. Mm. Or at least what I think of as flaws. I mm. think of things that are, well, you know, have aged very, very poorly or maybe aren't thought out the way that I would like them to be thought out or take for granted, you know, things that were sort of endemic of the time, like mm. institutionalized sexism is everywhere in the original series. Yeah, they yeah. thought of themselves as very progressive. And for the time, maybe they were. But that doesn't make them actually all that progressive all the time they did some shitty things and some of the best episodes of the show are often brought down by shit like that and Mm -hmm. they're kind of harder to watch now so i look forward to being able to see the next generation again for the first time as an adult as someone with more mature tastes and someone who can maybe discover them a little differently i discovered deep space nine when i was an adult i'd be surprised if i have a dramatically different take on it when i get to deep space nine so Next generation, on the other hand, who knows? Yeah. Uh, that and that's our Star Trek discussion for the week. <laughs> it comes except up, for except for all our except for except for the actual Star Trek podcast. Yeah, we have one Star Trek podcast. The idea was to take all of our Star Trek discussion and funnel it into one outlet, so that we could stop we, talking about we it. All brought the time. it up all the yeah. damn time on all of our other podcasts. Yeah, it hasn't worked. No, <laughs> no, it has we're, not. We're still just rambling on about Star Trek all the damn time. Well, let's move on. All right, here's a letter from Justin. Hi, Hi Justin. Justin. Uh, dear Bibbs and. Uh, it's just a series of emojis. <laughs> <laughs> it's Rockmeister McCool. Yeah, Rock, Rockmeister McCool. Is one of them um, a rock? Then it's Rockmeister McCool. Uh, the first one's a diamond. The second one is a blue flag with a white cross. And the third is a snowman. So Rock. Monster yeah. Mac, Mac. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Because it's a Scottish. Flag. It's cute. Uh, I like it. Um, thank you for being role models for non toxic masculinity. Oh. oh. Well, I'm not sure if I'm that, but all right. Well, we, um, we, we, we try not to have that toxic masculinity, so thank you. Uh, one of the many reasons I listen to your dozens of podcasts each week is because you always have a show where you acknowledge and amplify viewpoints that are not your own. And when somebody writes in to correct you, provide you information you might not have immediately recognized, you're very receptive and often, often incorporate ideas into your worldview. Every episode is a delight because you both genuinely adore each other and say it often thank you william 
I do adore you. I love you, man. Oh, thank you. Uh, in the spirit of non-toxic masculinity, I would love if you guys would want to take a second talk about personal self-care or some mm. other topic you guys think uh, think guys might need to hear. I appreciate okay. the podcasts and adore both of you so much, Justin. Uh, well, thank you for that. Mm. Um, I think Whitney and I have both been on the receiving end of toxic masculinity. Um, it's hard not to internalize it. We grew up with it a lot. But now that we're adults and we have, mm. you know, worked our way through some of that bullcrap and... We have you know a bit of a platform. I mean, we're not like the biggest podcast ever or anything like that, but thank you for listening. We want to make sure that we're trying at least, and sometimes we screw up and we try mm. to better ourselves, but we're trying to be positive. We're trying yeah. to espouse values that we consider positive, um, and even sometimes we disagree on that. But like, yeah, and one of the things that I'm really tired of is toxic masculine bullshit because... I was often told that I was less than for being not into macho dude stuff, sports mm. and the like. And yeah, that's that's nothing wrong with that stuff in principle. It's all about the attitude that we have about mm. it. So um, anyway, thank you. Thank you for appreciating it. We're, we're going to keep mm. trying and doing our best. Um, but uh, regarding just topics... of relevance, you brought up self-care. Mm. I think mm. self-care is really, really important right now. I think especially important like... This year, where people have lost a lot of their sort of social safety nets, mm. um, you're not – again, we're supposed to be self-isolating as much as possible. We're not supposed to be going out in groups. And I know a lot of people, whether this is a toxic masculinity thing or not, a lot of people thrive in groups and a lot yeah. of people haven't really been able to have that kind of well, socialization. That's not, that's and not toxic. That's no. just social humanity. It's social, social humanity. Animals. It's social humanity. Yeah. I agree. But like when it comes to self-care, I feel like – my point is that's not a problem. My point is sometimes we deny ourselves self-care because we're trying to project strength or convince ourselves of our own strength. Mm. And I think that can be an example of toxic masculinity because mm. we feel like we it, need it can, to be in control uh, all the time. It can we're, certainly lead to that. I mean, you know, as a but, man, I have but, yeah. to be on top of things all the time. I cannot admit to weakness yeah, but, and yeah, I but, cannot take care of my emotional or psychological needs because admitting that I have them could be considered weak. That's something that was kind of hammered into. Well, to me from yeah. an early age and I don't think it's healthy. Well, I think it's it's important uh to if you're if you're attempting to be stronger yeah. for instance like just have more personal fortitude and, mm -hmm. and and show a lot more confidence than perhaps you have. It's important to keep in mind that you're doing that because you want to be stronger mm -hmm. and not because you do not want to appear weak. Yeah. It's not about avoiding shame. It's about bettering oneself. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that's an important distinction. And I think the key to avoiding that shame mm. really isn't to project this air of invulnerability. Mm. The key to avoiding shame is to destigmatize a lot of the things that make us feel ashamed, like saying, I am afraid mm. or I am depressed or I am feeling anxious or mm. I have any of a number of mental health issues that may be temporary, may be pervasive and maybe something you want to seek help about. Um, I firmly believe that if you want to seek help about your various mental health issues, whatever they may be. I think you should. There's a lot mm. of great uh, programs out there, a lot of great therapists out there, many of whom will work for you know scale, mm. depending on your budget. And um, that has improved my life dramatically. And I hope that people out there don't feel the need to mm. take it all upon themselves and just try to soldier on, the stiff mm. upper lip, you know, yeah. and be a man, that kind of crap. Being an adult, being a mature person often means uh, – 
being honest about our frailties. Mm. All right. I have had a lot of really hard times this year, it, it largely amplified by the COVID scenario, but mm. in a million other ways as well. And I'm very fortunate that I have a small sort of safety net when it comes to people I know. Like it's pretty much just, you know, my mm. wife and partner, Michelle, Whitney, my mom, my therapist. That's about it. Like I can, I'll talk about it online, but you're the people who I go to, to for like nurturing and strength. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, even that, that, that really, really helps. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I just think it's important to be able to say when you're not feeling strong. And I think that is a certain kind of strength in and of yeah. itself. And I think it's a sort of strength that will make other people feel less alone and make other people feel like they're not going through their problems like by themselves because other people, people mm-hmm. who might otherwise seem strong are going through them as well. And that makes us feel like, Oh, we're all in this together. We are mm-hmm. actually feeling the same things and we're going to work through them together as mm-hmm. people. And I think that's really, anyway, I'm going to get misty eyed, but no. um, yeah. Well, by, by, by that token, however, um, if you're the type of person who thrives when you're alone, hmm. you don't necessarily have to reach out if you don't want to. That's true. Uh, I, I feel like there's this uh, – the instinct is to say we're all here for you. You can talk when you want to. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that can uh, – is not necessarily going to be helpful for everyone. I think there's a, a certain type of person out there who would prefer to do it themselves. Yeah. And that's not toxic masculinity no, speaking. Not that's, necessarily. That's actually just a matter of your character. And I feel like if, knowing yourself and knowing what you need, mm-hmm. uh, whether that is a company, whether that is a support system, or whether that is the space to work on it yourself, yeah. is all just as important. Yeah. When I, when I say that, I don't mean that everyone should do what I have done. What mm-hmm. I mean is that if you want to or feel like it would help you, don't let a social stigma prevent you. Yeah. If, on the other hand, you're right. Some people do thrive. Mm-hmm. A lot, there's a lot of introverted people out there. One of the things I hate in so much media, <laughs> popular culture, are all of these stories about people who are introverted mm-hmm. and all of these movies and books and, and uh, TV shows and other uh, uh, stories that we tell about how this person was introverted and then the extroverted people mm-hmm. help them become extroverts and now they're better. And that's mm-hmm. condescending as hell. It's condescending and usually, I've seen a lot of those movies as well. Usually it involves drugs. You notice that? It's yeah, you like, go to a party, get go drunk. To a party, yeah, yeah. I, you're going to get drunk and you'll be fine. It's like, mm-hmm. really? You need alcohol as the catalyst to changing your entire personality? A, booze doesn't work that way. And mm-hmm. B, isn't that like a scare film tactic? Like <laughs> you, try, is, you try yeah. a drug and your personality will change? Yeah. Except, uh, except in this time, it's okay. And, and I've, I've seen that with, with like weed as well. It's like, oh, he's so uptight, but he tries weed once, and all of a sudden, he's just better. Yeah. It's like, no, he's still going to be uptight at the end of that, just mm-hmm. now he's had weed. Yeah, the idea is that, oh, we just need to get them out of their shells. Mm. Animals have shells for a reason. <laughs> like, turtles can't... I know, don't, don't follow Super Mario Brothers on here. Turtles can't leave their shells. It's part of their body. Yeah. Some people are introverted because it's who they are and it really helps them. And that doesn't mean that they never want to socialize. Mm. But it does mean that they don't necessarily default to it. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm really sick of movies implying that there is. Mm. Implying that introversion is just the same as being a little shy. And that's not Uh, the same thing. No. uh, 
if it is a story about somebody who's just a little shy. Oh yeah, that's fine. And, and but, if and especially if it's a story about somebody who's a little shy who expresses an interest in becoming more extroverted. Yeah, that's a different thing. That's a different story. Yeah, but yeah, the, no, I agree. Um, but in any case, hmm. so those are those are just some of the things. Not that last one was necessarily toxic hmm. masculinity, but I think a big part of toxic masculinity often is the idea that as a man. Hmm. Uh, we're not allowed to express weakness. We're not allowed to express vulnerability. Or, or, and, or emotions. Or emotions yeah. at all, really. And I think that's what... I've heard people say, like, oh, movies don't make me scared or mm. cry. And I'm like, um, are you watching good movies? <laughs> because that's what they're here for. I mean, Ebert famously called the machines that produce empathy. Mm. We're supposed to feel things. And that doesn't mean every movie does that. Some movies aren't very well made. And they are not really capable of producing those emotions within us. But... I think you, I think if you're gonna fully appreciate art, you need to open up your kind of your soul to them hmm. and allow yourself to connect to things on a level that toxic masculinity often implies that we shouldn't, um, or that we would be less than for doing so. And I just don't agree with that. Hmm. Um, in any case, it's a big topic. Neither of us are psychologists or no. social scientists or sociologists, whatever you want to call mm. it. So, um, so this is just our take on it. And I hope that's not entirely wrong headed what we just said, but mm. we're, we're trying and this is where we're at right now. And hope that what we say can help you in some sort of way. Yeah. Or at the very least, or at the very least, if nothing else, hopefully destigmatize being vulnerable and, um, and yeah, once again, I, I I really do love you, man. Like I, oh, I, I don't mean that like with a punch. You know, like, I love you, man. Punch. Well, like I love let's you. Hug, as a but human you have being. to hit each other on the yeah. back to yeah to make sure it's not intimate. Uh, th- that's not necessary. Yeah. I genuinely love you as a human being. I'm glad yeah. we get to well, do so much thank together. You. Thank you. And uh, someday I hope to earn it. Um, uh, here's a letter from CW. Hello, CW. Ooh, is, Hi. Are you CW Stone King, the Australian blues musician? Perhaps. Because I love C.W. Stone King. I, I am um, not familiar with their work. Hey, Bibbs and Rockmeister. Uh, Rockmeister spelled R-O-Q-U-E-M-E-I-G-H-S-T-E-R. Nice. Rockmeister. Um, hope this email finds you and yours well. Uh, I really wanted to co- uh, commend you on any May month on Cancel Too Soon. Thank we'll, you. We'll get back to that soon enough. We, we have uh, an episode that got delayed for a variety of reasons. Uh, Sorry about that. As someone with no knowledge of the medium, it is always insightful and has inspired me to check out more of them. I'm glad uh, Michelle yeah. is joining us on those because yeah. she actually has way more insight than I ever. Would. Yeah. Uh, today I was watching Tenebrae. Oh. Uh, and I thought I'd ask about Nicolodi and Argento. While Dario Argento was already a commendable force in Italian horror when he met Dario Nicolodi, having basically already codified the giallo genre, it's arguably the films that were made during their relationship that skyrocketed him into legendary status. Deep Red, Suspirio, Inferno, Tenebrae, and Phenomena are all classics in their own right. It could be argued that he only made one more great film after their relationship dissolved in 1985, and that was 1987's Oprah, co-starring, you guessed it, Dario Nicolodi. Oh, that's true. Uh, I'm I'm not meaning to belittle Argento or his work in any way, but do you think it's possible that Nicolodi added something necessary to his output that was just missing from his later work? I don't mean uh, I don't mean like a muse thing, which I find very belittling. Mm. I find actual insights into themes, shots, angles, etc. Um, like how Alma Raville never gets enough credit for her work with Hitchcock. True. That's uh, true. Yeah, she wrote Suspicion, and that was it. He handled the rest, my ass. <laughs> no, in fact, she's yeah. actually credited with a lot of other stuff, and yeah, yeah, actually yeah. official credits in a lot of it. Mm. Yeah. 
I've been thinking a lot about this type of thing from time to time since watching Fosse slash Verdon. Mm. It explores how Bob Fosse was dependent on Gwen Verdon for ins- insight into the editing of his film version of Cabaret, even though they were separated at the time. I guess it's just easier for us to direct our praise at an individual, and I suppose it's much easier was much easier in the 60s and 70s if that individual was also a straight white male. Mm. What, if anything, Nickelodeon was responsible for is just conjecture and an educated guess on my part, but I do think it's time that we ask, <laughs> ask of some of these, quote, great men to step aside and let us thank some of the great women for their exemplary work. Uh, hashtag support your local schoonmaker. <laughs> thank you guys. Peace, love, and good vibes. CW. That last thing was a reference to uh, Martin Scorsese's editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, mm. uh, who has done most, if not all, of his movies, I think. Uh, most of them. Yeah. yeah, the vast majority. And to ask both of them, she's a huge mm. part of why a lot of those movies work. Um, I, I got to interview her once. I remember uh, yeah. that. That was uh, a great was, interview. It was really, really great. It's yeah. The only time I've ever interviewed an editor, and she's like the most famous editor working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I actually was really trying to to get her to uh, to to cl- uh, essentially claim more than uh, that <laughs> she gets credit for. Yeah, yeah. I, like I wasn't trying to trick her or anything. But no, I was, but you were trying giving to, her an opportunity. So I actually to, said, like, yeah. I'd like to invite you to be immodest. I actually said this to her. How much of of the, what you do with Scorsese is him, and how much of it is you? And she says, No, it's it's a collaboration. He comes up with all the ideas, and I make something out of it. So yeah. we're both doing our part. It's like, yeah. which is a very diplomatic thing to say. Well, I mean, I mean that uh, that is and the, what that's, happens. Yeah, it's he also films it. He, he's not on set all. The time so um but it's true like every pretty much every scorsese movie gets filtered through thomas Schoonmaker first mm. before we get to see it and that might be for the better of everybody um although my my comment walking out of the irishman was that thelma could, could have done a little more i there. remember you specifically <laughs> saying that as we were walking at theater it's just like you can trim it a little. Th- you can trim it a smidge. Just like 30, 30 minutes you could have just, just taken out of there. Just, just, Would have been so much better. Just sort of squeezed out. <laughs> um, Dude, I mean, how many shots do we need to see them driving back and forth to that house? Every man? single one is relevant. No. Um, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Uh, so, but yeah, to the to the point of, again, if anyone is unfamiliar with the context, uh, Dario Argento is considered one of the greatest horror filmmakers ever, specifically for the films that he directed from the 1970s through the late 1980s, although he had arguably a few other good ones mm. afterwards. Um, but he was one of the most, probably the most famous internationally uh, director of the Gialli genre, which we talk mm-hmm. about a lot, uh, which is basically a sort of a hybrid of detective stories and slasher movies where someone is trying to solve a mystery, follow clues. And, and while, while a killer is still at large. And while a killer is not only at large, but killing people in really elaborate, gruesome slasher horror kind of ways and the American slasher genre in many ways sort of evolved out of the giallo Mm. Um, Dario Argento has made a lot of films he's very prolific uh, and quite a few of them in the 70s and 80s starred Dario Nicolotti uh, who was married to him from 1974 to 1985 Mm. Uh, and the question is what do we feel that she brought to those films and without knowing any of the behind the scenes stuff I know that you know, they, they divorced and apparently wasn't super happy about it. But uh, what I do know is that when you watch those films, the ones with Dara Nickelodeon, mm. she brought a lot of human energy to films which could potentially otherwise mm. have been so mechanical in their construct 
that they could have just felt like elaborate kill counts. Like you look at something like Deep Red, mm. which is I think one of if not Dario Gento's very best works. Um, it stars um, oh, what's the dude's name? No, what was not, the dude's not, name? The main dude not, from not David Hemmings. Um, it was David Hemmings. It was David Hemmings. It was David was Hemmings. Was Hemmings. Oh, okay. Yeah, David Hemmings. David Hemmings stars in right. Deep Red um, as a guy who stumbles onto a murder, and it's really, really awesome. Where it's this incredible opening sequence where they're at a. It's kind of like the opening of Scanners, where it's like a big public display of psychic phenomena. Mm-hmm. And a woman is, like, on stage, and she's like, oh, will you tell us something about people in the audience to prove you're a psychic? And she realizes someone in this audience is a murderer. (laughs) And then she is later murdered Mm. that night by that killer, but we don't know who the killer was. And David Hemmings happens to be walking by, hears the screams, runs in, just misses the murderer. But, and this this is a gimmick... Argento would come back to, I think he'd already done it once in Birth of Crystal Plumage, but this is a gimmick he liked. He feels like he missed a clue. <laughs> There's one thing he saw that he missed. And if you've seen the movie, you know that it's a really fun thing. Um, but along the way, he picks up a reporter played by Dario Nicolotti, who is coming right out of a Howard Hawks comedy. She is a, an absolute spitfire. She's funny. She's got comic relief tendencies. She's got this wacky car that she drives like a bat out of hell and scares the shit out of David Hemmings. She brings so much life and vitality to this otherwise grim and dour proceeding. And you see that, I think, in pretty much everything. I, I haven't seen... Have I seen everything? I don't think... I, I never saw Tenebrae. Okay. But I've seen everything else that they did together. And I think that's true for pretty much all of it. She is very, 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 very much like the the beating heart mm-hmm. of his movies, whether or not she's the protagonist. Because she is the one who is bringing so much character to them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll see a great Dario Argento movie where the main character doesn't have much. Suspiria is a great example. I love mm-hmm. Jessica Harper to death, but for a lot of that movie, she's mostly just scared. Yeah, she's not yeah. really bringing a lot well, it's, to it's, it. You it's know? not like a rich character piece. No. Uh, it's it's a style exercise. Uh, in fact, it, and I, I think, think that's true for a lot of our Argento. Yeah, I think Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria is way better than Argento's in a lot of ways. Well, from that perspective, yes, yeah. I would say so. Yeah. Uh, in terms of like the the more general issue here that. Uh, that we tend to look at singular auteurs as the masters of the film, and we tend to mm-hmm. praise the director or maybe the screenwriter mm-hmm. uh, as sort of the, the single artist behind it. Occasionally uh, the producer, William Castle, but uh, yeah, usually director, occasionally, occasionally but, occasionally but William Castle directed those movies, too. A lot of them. Well, yeah. not like Rosemary's Baby, but he, he, did a lot he, he directed the, yeah. you know, the good ones. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, no, the Tingler is better than Rosemary's Baby. I said it here. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to fight you too hard on that. <laughs> uh, but that's that's something that came together, I think. Uh, was it Truffaut who coined auteur theory, or uh, it was around think, that, that? It was that generation. I think it was. I think it was uh, du Cinema yeah, that, 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 that that sort of put that forth. And yeah, the idea that when we speak of a film, we must speak of an author, and the director is a de facto author, yeah. theoretically, because all of the creative decisions are usually filtered through the director. They're, they're the ones who are directing. Even yeah. though uh, I remember there was a movement very briefly, like in the late '90s, to uh, you know, usually would have the direct like directed by at the end of the mm-hmm. credits. But then it would also say a uh, name film, 
Yeah, like John and, Carpenter yeah, blank. Like, or, like, yeah, it's like a, a... A Tim Burton film. Yeah, a Tim Burton film, because Tim Burton was the director. And I know there was a, a, a movement that didn't get a lot of traction to have that, that initial name replaced with the screenwriter's name. Yeah. So, which, uh, which makes a lot of sense until you realize that a lot of studio systems, the writers are often it's multitudinous, a, yeah, and it's, it's hard yeah, to declare whole, who... It's a whole bank of writers. Yeah. It's and, not like there's one writer. Very rarely does one writer stay on the project the whole time. Mm. And, yeah, you, yeah. And, and especially in a big there's, studio. There's going to be one, maybe one or two people credited. Yeah. If there's four people credited, at least fifty people worked on that. Movie. Look up one of these days, yeah. like just go to IMDb or whatever or Wikipedia and look up all of the uncredited writers on the Flintstones movie. Oh gosh, there've got to been a hundred of those. The live-action Flintstones movie had an absurd. Hmm. number of writers especially absurd when you finally watch the movie and you realize just how basic it is <laughs> like it's really not like they, that interesting they, they, whoever was envisioning that movie that whatever producer it was needed it to look and sound a very particular way yeah so they needed to keep passing it around from all these different writers to make sure they got it just right we need a scene where they bowl damn it yeah right, fine well suddenly, that's, uh, here's the adding that one here's the one uh, one author is just writing the bowling scene yeah um Pauline Kael very famously bristled at the idea of auteur theory because mm. uh, she understood that film is a collaborative effort. It's it true. took a lot of people to make a film. It was never just one director. There was always, uh, you know, it wasn't just the director. It wasn't just the screenwriter. It's also the editor. It's also mm-hmm. uh, the, the photographers. Mm-hmm. It's the lighting people. It's, the actors, it, hell. Yeah, the actors are bringing a lot to this that maybe a director isn't even thinking of. All of these people are working together to make the final product of whatever the film is. Uh, you know, unless you're watching Jonathan Coet's Tarnation, no mm. film is made by just one person. <laughs> Jonathan Coet's tar- Tarnation, by the way, one of the best films of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. I recommend it highly. It's a documentary that he filmed entirely himself over the course of his life, and mm. then he got like some very cheap editing software and, and edited himself, the whole film yeah. himself. Like literally, the whole film is him. Mm. It's pretty impressive, and it's great. It's a great documentary. Uh, no, who and of course, uh, and even if we do go with Arto theory, yeah, to go to your letter, mm-hmm. uh, who is influencing the director at the time? Should they also get credit, not just in a muse way? Because I think that's also a little bit demeaning, especially uh-huh. when we're talking about uh, how women are usually the muses to great men. Yeah, it's uh, the idea. It's like their yeah. their greatest function was to inspire this dude. Yeah. Fuck like, you. No. <laughs> no. The, 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 the joke I heard recently is, behind every great man is the drawer I need to get into right now. Why are you even in the kitchen right now? <laughs> uh, that, that's what I read on Twitter. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, th- that uh, a lot of people who are working with the director, maybe not even in a professional uh, capacity, yeah. maybe are just living with the director or are good friends with the director yeah. or bouncing ideas off of the director and helping them refine their ideas – they're a creative force in that film as well. Yeah. Maybe not in a tangible, creditable sort of way, but they're an important influence. That being said, the further we go mm-hmm. down that sort of degrees, the more you realize that all art works that way. It doesn't yeah. matter if you're – even if you're a painter and you paint everything yourself, there are still people you talk to. There are still other artists you see and are inspired by or try to sort of yeah. contradict because you don't like their work. And art is does not exist in a vacuum. It couldn't. Mm. Art is, in many respects, all symbolic. Yeah. It all represents things that we're supposed to recognize on some level, and we can't do that if we exist outside of society or outside of other works of art. Um, so auteur theory is one of those theories that I don't think is entirely without merit as a conversational item. 
uh, because there are definitely filmmakers who have very specific, regardless of who they work with, have very specific through lines in all of their work. And yeah. you can just tell if you can always tell a Michael Bay film. Hmm. Like you just know, like I'm not calling him a great filmmaker per se, but I do believe that if there is a modern auteur, Michael Bay's would be one of them yeah. because he does seem to put a very particular stamp on his work, regardless of who he works with. Um, but it's only one theory through which to look at cinema. And I think if you go down the laundry list of the various theories mm. of what is what is the most significant lens through which to view a film, I think if you go through all of them, you're going to find, A, they're not always all relevant all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes movies are more prone to one interpretation or one particular lens than another. But most films probably benefit from the combination of all or most of them. Yeah. Uh, so, but yes, that's an excellent point has been made. We've spent way too much time lauding specific filmmakers and not enough time talking about all the various collaborators. A large part of this, however, we do have to admit is because we don't always talk to those collaborators. Yeah. And we don't always know the extent to which they collaborated, um, which is why I firmly believe that um, various outlets should probably make a more concerted effort to interview people below the line as well as the director and writer. Right. You know, it'd be nice to see more second unit credit, second unit credit, second unit would be a great interview. I've interviewed stunt persons before we had, was it Colleen Atwood we had on our podcast once? That was an amazing conversation. One of, one of the most, most famous costume designers working now. Yeah. Like we, and again, we could have done more, but like, I think as a, as a industry, uh, as far as the press and the critics mm. and people who do this, I think it would really behoove us all to spend more time talking about everyone involved in the process, yeah. not just the director and the actors and the writers and occasionally the producers. Like, like the, the, Those are the most visible, but yeah, yeah, to make a film, it takes a lot more than that. And I encourage everybody listening, if those are the kinds of like interviews or like sound bites you mostly mm. hear a lot from, seek out like interviews, conversations, podcasts with those other people, because one of the most exciting things about film is learning more and more and more about how it's made. I, I Practically everyone that I went to film school with went to film school knowing exactly what they wanted to do in the industry and then doing something else. Some of them left, but the ones who stayed with like one exception ended up like doing something tangential to what they were like. I wanted to direct, but then I realized I think producing is way more interesting Mm. or I wanted to be a cinematographer, but damn it. Editing is so cool. Like (laughs) there's so many different things and we're not always exposed to them and learning more about them can really open up your eyes. Yeah. So, uh, do we have time for one more? Uh, sure. We can do one. All right. One more. Uh, let's see here. Um, this one's from Marshall. Hi, Marshall. Hi, Marshall. Hello, Bibbs and Whitney. I recently introduced my kids to the 1982 film Poltergeist, ah. which I watched many times and enjoyed as a kid. You watched it as a kid. You are of that generation that probably saw it at too early an age. Same here. Um, I probably hadn't seen it in over 30 years, so I wondered how it would hold up. I thought it held up pretty well. Uh, now I saw it from my parents' pe- uh, now I saw it from my parents' point of view. Uh-huh. My kids enjoyed the movie, but didn't think it was very scary. Ah. Hmm. 
Okay. All right. Uh, however, what completely blew my mind was when I saw the parents smoking weed in their bedroom after they put their kids to bed. I had no memory of this. <laughs> it must have always been there, and I guess my young innocent mind just didn't understand. It's no big deal. I was just shocked that I, quote, hadn't seen that before. Yet I remembered the rest of the movie in great detail. For instance, uh, I was waiting for the toy Hulk to fly by riding the horse. Fun. Uh, had this kind of, has this kind of thing happened to you? What are some movie elements that you saw as a child... Uh, and then we're surprised when you rewatch the movie as an adult. Keep up the great work. Um, yeah, when I rewatched Poltergeist as an adult, like I hadn't seen it in many years, and it came out like Blu-ray, and I watched it, and that is a scene that I actually totally, totally went over my head. Mm. Either because I think two things might have been a factor here. One, they don't make a big deal about them smoking pot. It could have just looked like on an old crappy TV, like they're smoking cigarettes, or mm. I just didn't know what rolling a joint looked like, and so I didn't really process it, yeah. and I was thinking more about... And also, the scene is very much about like just them bonding as adults, and it's right. actually a really, really great scene. The other thing I suspect is a possibility is that that scene lifts out of the movie very easily if you're cutting the movie <laughs> for time. Like, So it's possible yeah. that that was cut for... Reasons of we don't want to show pod on daytime television on channel nine, like on a Sunday, mm. or maybe just didn't feel relevant to the plot. So it's possible we don't remember that because it wasn't in every version that we saw. I don't know that for a fact, but it sounds plausible. Um, beyond that, I, I do know that there is a ton of stuff like that that went completely over my head. I find a lot of it was like jokes, like adult adult humor, like yeah. uh. uh there's a go back to Mel Brooks. Uh, there's a bit in Young Frankenstein where but practically all the sex jokes in Young Frankenstein I didn't get. Practically every <laughs> single one when like he gets into like the hay cart with Inga played by uh, um, Terry Gar. Terry Gar yeah. and and Terry Gar. And by the way, the camera loves Terry Gar in that movie. She's <laughs> just radiant, mm. and she's just like and she just pops up and she's just like the most beautiful person in the world. And Gene Wilder sees her in a hay cart. It's like hello. Would you like a roll in the hay? Roll, roll. And she rolls back and forth yeah. in the hay. No idea what that joke was what about. What a roll in the hay. I had yeah. no idea whatsoever uh, what that joke was about. About 30% of Mel Brooks went over my head when yeah. I was a kid. And I loved Mel Brooks as a kid. Mm -hmm. I, I fell in love with Spaceballs in an early age and just sought out all the other ones. The one that uh, really shocked me when I got older. Mm -hmm. uh, History of the World Part 1. Yeah. There's a bit where uh, Madeline Kahn asks one of her women-in-waiting, uh, what will happen to the criminals if they're caught? And the woman-in-waiting says, well, if they're captured, they're hung. And she says, not necessarily. <laughs> I had no idea. No idea that was a dick joke. Nice. It just went right on my... It's like, okay. And and, and of course, after she says it, she she then like... She goes like, whoa! Like everybody in the room kind of... Yeah. Uh, is is really uh, scandalized she, by the joke. She's on kinky fire in History of the World yeah. Part One. She's so damn funny. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. 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 Yes. Which was cut from the TV version, of yeah. course, because it's like a, a it's very risque. A, a litany of, of male butts on the screen. It's her picking based on uh, uh, penis size. Mm. Who will be part of the orgy today? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so it's, it's so rapid. It's a really really raunchy movie. It is, but like even but I think Mel Brooks is actually a great example here because mm. Mel Brooks would often fill his movies with gags and references that required mm. a certain amount of foreknowledge, and sometimes it was because of, you know, sex, mm -hmm. and he was being sort of coy about some of it, and maybe the kids in the audience won't get it. 
But I was also, I was watching, recently was watching High Anxiety, which is one of his less talked about films. Mm. Um, it's a parody, of- mostly of Alfred Hitchcock movies, a few other things as well, but thrillers. Mm. And uh, I was watching this and, like, Michelle and I, we, like, hadn't really seen it much as a kid. Like, we saw it, like, once as a kid and we didn't mm. make it too much of an impression. And part of it's because it's not one of his best movies, but... Part of it is because a lot of the gags in it are referencing very specific sort of films that maybe we weren't familiar with yet. Hmm. We were watching this scene, and, and like, and we we're watching this scene where uh, it's a parody of The Birds, where Mel Brooks is sitting on a park bench, and hmm. then behind him there's a jungle gym, and there's a couple of pigeons on it. Oh, yeah. And then he turns around, there's a whole bunch of pigeons. Then he turns around and it's covered of pigeons. And then they all start pooping on him. And he's like running down the, ho- down the park and there's this flock of pigeons following him. And they're all pooping on him. Mm. And it occurred to me that I don't remember if I saw that movie before I saw the birds. But some kid did. <laughs> some kid saw this movie on TV uh. or whatever. Before they saw the birds, before they knew about Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, mm. and all they saw was all of a sudden this movie totally took a break so that a whole bunch of birds could mysteriously show up and poop on Mel Brooks. And you know what? In a vacuum, probably still funny. <laughs> but it makes no sense. Mm. But it's funny. And I think yeah. I find that's true for like a lot of things that I thought were funny when I was a kid and I didn't get the reference was I thought it was a complete non sequitur. Yeah, I yeah. thought it was just being silly for its own sake, and only mm. now that I revisit it as an adult do I realize, oh, we were referencing that thing. Sophisticated reference to something yeah. different. Yeah, well, it's not that sophisticated. Well, Apparently, that I, that joke was Alfred Hitchcock's idea. <laughs> it was oh yeah, he said, yeah. wouldn't it be funny if the birds pooped on him instead? Yeah. Uh, Mel Brooks was working on that film where Alfred Hitchcock mm. was still alive, and apparently he used to like come over to Alfred Hitchcock's like office mm. at the studio, and they would like throw ideas back and forth for ways they could parody his films. And Alfred Hitchcock was the one who thought it'd be really funny if we did the birds, but the birds pooped on you. <laughs> All right, you there know, you go. sophisticated filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> Mel Brooks, Hitchcock, they're about the same. Yeah, kind of. Um, I, I love Mel Brooks, so I grew up with Mel Brooks. Same. Same. Brilliant mm. filmmaker. Not not everything he's done is gold, mm. but enough is like comedy perfection and still holds up today that you're just like, mm. wow. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's the We've Got Mail. Thank you, everybody, for listening, especially thank you, everybody, who wrote in. If we didn't get to your emails, we'll be back next week. We try to do as many as we can, but um, if we missed yours... Uh, and we don't get around to it, feel free to write in again or give us a poke if it's important or timely. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. Of course, you can write into this show. Uh, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address. Uh, thank you for listening to and subscribing to the Critically Acclaimed Network. If you want even more stuff with us, go to critically, I'm sorry, go to patreon.com slash Critically acclaimed network, network okay. where we have a ton of shows, including our brand new show, Holy Batman, in which we're reviewing every single episode of the 1960s live action Batman series. Uh, and we're already having a lot of fun with that. The first episode's live now. We're also got commentary tracks uh, and Star Trek, which we already talked about. We got Not on Disney Plus, uh, an Oscars podcast, ton of stuff. Mm-hmm. It is so hot in here without the air conditioning on, which we have to turn off mm-hmm. to record. So we're going to go. Uh, thank you, everybody, once again. Whitney, am I forgetting anything? Uh, nope, you got it all. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>